And also Chinese food is one of the most popular cuisines in America. There's more than 50,000 Chinese restaurants here. And yet Chinese food had a really bad reputation in the US. People had all kinds of ideas about whether it's high quality or not, whether it's healthy or not, and also whether it's worth paying for or not. Hello and welcome to Shopify On Location. I'm Shuang Esther Shan. What is your go-to condiment to spice up a meal? For Jing Gao, she turned flavors from her hometown of Chengdu, China into her very own line of chili crisps and sauces. It's called Fly by Jing. It's grown from a personal recipe into a modern Asian food brand that can be found in over 3,000 stores, including Whole Foods, Sprouts, and Target. Jing joins us now, and we're going to chat all about how she recipe tested, found retail partners, and scaled Fly by Jing into a seven-figure business. Jing, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you. I'm a big fan. We know that you moved around a lot as a kid. Um, You lived in Europe, and then you also lived in Canada and now Los Angeles. So what about the flavors from Citroën that really motivated you to start Fly by Jing? So I was born in Chengdu, which is known as the flavor capital of China. And, you know, people think of it as just spicy cuisine, but it's actually so much more than that. There's literally dozens of different flavor profiles that the chefs are known to be able to create. And I grew up around that and I just was in love with these flavors. But, you know, growing up, we moved around a lot, too, and we lived in several countries in Europe. And then we eventually um, moved to Canada, where I went to high school and university and you know, those flavors of my hometown just weren't really accessible to me. And it wasn't really until I found myself with a job in my 20s in China that I started to really reconnect with my own cultural identity, mostly through food and through flavors. And I realized I just you know, wanted to bring these flavors to the rest of the world and make them a bit more accessible. Um, and so that's really what was behind it. And Fly by Jing is also, in a sense, a rebirth and a reclaim of your own identity. Tell us why the branding was so important for you. Yeah, so I named the company Fly by Jing um, after a type of restaurant from my hometown called Fly Restaurants. And these are hole in the walls that are so delicious that they're said to attract people like flies, no matter how hidden and kind of low key they are. So I loved that sort of aspect of Sichuan's food culture. It's so energetic. It's the flavors are electrifying. And so when I originally started Fly by Jing as a underground supper club in Shanghai, I wanted to evoke those feelings. And, you know, the by Jing part was really kind of self-explanatory. Jing is my birth name, but actually growing up since the age of six, since we moved around so much, I actually um, adopted a Western name in order to fit in, in order to blend in. So I was known as Jenny for most of my life. And when I started Fly by Jing, I was actually still known as Jenny. And I named the company Fly by Jing in order to kind of like try to sort of grasp more at my roots and my identity. And throughout the journey of building the company, I've actually come to reclaim my name as well. So um, I reclaimed Jing a couple of years ago. Yeah, I think a lot of immigrant 
children can feel the same. I too kind of went through the same process during grade school where I had to pick between Shuang and Esther. So I definitely relate to that. I think what else is interesting about your business is that, you know, personal recipes, you cook it for family and friends is one thing. And then when you try to scale that into production, it's a really tough task. So how did you approach that process of testing and also like looking for production facilities and making sure that recipe really translates? You know, what I realized in the journey of scaling the production of my sauces was you know, it made sense why a lot of products on the mass market taste kind of watered down because there were just so many challenges along the way to keeping the integrity of the flavor and the product quality. And so I would say that my sort of insistence and just perseverance, I guess you could say, in maintaining the quality of uh, ingredients in the quality of just even the technique um, and the flavors in the product, which took a tremendous amount of time and effort, really is the key to what kind of separates Flybedging now from other brands, because it, it really is so paramount to the end product. And, you know, our products, our ingredients are sourced from very specific regions uh, around Sichuan, and uh, they're based on personal relationships that I've built over the 10 years that I've lived in China. And also, it's like a specific point of view. We say that our flavors are rooted in tradition, but made for the way that we eat today, um, just like myself. You know, I was born in Chengdu, grew up kind of all over the world, and now living in the U.S. So, you know, there's a very specific point of view that I wanted to express with the flavors as well. And I think that was all very challenging for a manufacturer that has been doing things the same way and, you know, had a lot of resistance, a lot of pushback, people saying, this doesn't make any sense. Why would you put ingredients into a product that costs more than retail value of like similar products? People didn't want to change the way that they've been doing things for forever. It took probably over a year to find the right manufacturer, the right partner um, who had the patience to deal with my kind of insistence. Um, but I think that the kind of end product speaks for itself. And I know the process of making chili oil is sometimes kind of scary when you do it at home. There's like hot oil that you have to handle. Where were some challenges that you faced throughout the process that you didn't anticipate in this like large scale capacity? You know, obviously making something in a home kitchen versus a large scale manufacturing site is, is quite different. Tiny changes in temperature and, you know, ingredient quantity can have massive effects on the final product. And so it was definitely a bit of a trial and error. You know, we would start scaling from, you know, a small wok to like a larger one and then getting larger and larger each time uh, and adjusting as we go until we get to you know, the final step, which is like a two to 400 kilo kind of large drum, the order in which you add ingredients, the specific temperature, and, you know, also when you add an ingredient, like a temperature drops, right, of, of the oil. And so just really timing everything really specifically. What I think I'm the most proud of is that the way that we make the product today is pretty similar to how I made it in my kitchen in Shanghai. 
like several years ago. Amazing. I'm chatting with Jing Gao, the founder and CEO of Flyby Jing, the maker of the cult favorite chili crisp. Um, I love to talk a little bit about your career path. You also had a successful career in tech and a large consumer packaged goods brand before becoming a chef and now a business founder. So how did you deal with the instability that comes with switching careers? You know, it made sense in hindsight, kind of the path that I took that all led to where I am today. But um, at the time, I was really just trying to learn and absorb as much as possible. And, you know, when I felt like I had learned as much as I could from a specific company, a role, I wanted to move on and learn something else. Because I think I always knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur and um, was really viewing it as like just opportunities to kind of round out my skill set. And so I started my career at P&G in brand management, actually in Toronto. And um, that was a really great experience of, you know, leading kind of a, a brand and uh, and kind of a small team, really. So you were acting as a mini CEO of each of the brands that you worked on. Um, that was a really great kind of jump off point. And then I went into tech, actually worked for BlackBerry in Asia. And so that's what brought me to Asia. And that role was sort of a product management and also business development role, which, yeah, I think I've really just tried to draw as much as I could from every job. Well, my first business was actually a restaurant. So I started a restaurant in Shanghai called Baoism. And that was really just me like kind of diving into the deep end. I quit my job, my very kind of cushy, high paying tech job and dove into the unknowns of a startup, which my parents could not understand. Um, <laughs> and that sort of that taught me a ton of lessons. But I, I would say uh, there was definitely kind of a foundation that I built first in food. And for me, that was through food writing, food media, um, where it kind of led me to the point where I knew that I had to pursue this full time. Through all the changes and all the moves, you then decided to move to Los Angeles in large part because you wanted to start Fly by Jing. So tell us why it was so important to be based in L.A. Yeah, so um, I was living in China for about 10 years in Shanghai for seven, and I had built my business there. I had a successful kind of underground supper club. I was selling my sauces in China. Um, but in 2018, I was traveling through the U.S. and I ended up going to Expo West, which is the largest natural food show in the world, really. And it's based in California, um, happens every year. And I was walking the halls and, you know, this is really kind of the place where a lot of decisions get made about what people are going to be eating in the years to come, right? These are buyers that are uh, walking the halls, looking for the next innovations and foods that they can bring into stores like Whole Foods, etc. And I was really stunned by the lack of diversity in food options presented there. And this is like really the future of healthy eating in America. And I could count probably less than five Asian food brands. And that was really shocking to me because I knew that a lot of the growth, you know, in natural food was going to be coming from multicultural flavors. I knew that People were craving more and more spicy flavors. Um, and also Chinese food is 
one of the most popular cuisines in America. There's more than 50,000 Chinese restaurants here, and yet Chinese food had a really bad reputation in the U.S. People had all kinds of ideas about whether it's high quality or not, whether it's healthy or not, and also whether it's worth paying for or not. And after living for 10 years in China, I had and training as a chef there and working in food, I knew of Chinese food in a completely different way. I saw just how rich and complex this culture, 5,000-year culinary heritage was. I decided that if I wanted to change people's perceptions and really kind of shine light on this cuisine and do it justice, I needed to move to the U.S. And, you know, through my work with food media, I knew that U.S. media really does dictate a lot of the way that the world sees things. And so I wanted to tell my story, tell the story of Chinese food. So I decided to move to the U.S. and launch this company as a sauce business. It started with a Kickstarter and um, decided on L.A. because it is close to Asia. I thought I was going to be traveling to Chengdu. There used to be a direct flight from LA to Chengdu, and I thought I was going to be taking that all the time. Of course, COVID had other plans, but that was the reason I wanted to move here. And, you know, also given that I'm from Toronto and it's, you know, I'm used to Canadian winters, I was ready for something a little bit warmer. So here I am. So one aspect is the fact that Los Angeles had that proximity to the Shanghai port. Um, and then I think on the flip side of that, Los Angeles is also home to so many different types of people. Has the environment also helped to scale the business in different ways? Yeah, I think LA has a really exciting food scene. You know, there's a lot of um great things happening in the restaurant world. Um, but also in the last few years, there's been a, a rise in CPG, you know, consumer goods companies being based here. Um, there's been a really nice little ecosystem of, you know, tech companies, CPG companies, and more and more food and beverage companies as well. So yeah, it's been a really great base for that reason. Yeah, have been able to create a really nice community of founders or a support network of founders around me. LA, the city itself, also diverse collection of restaurants and also cultures and just like great art. Has the city inspired you in different ways in the building and scaling the business as well? I think so. Like we say, our flavors are rooted in tradition, but made for, you know, the way we eat today. And I think, um, the brand and its attitude is definitely kind of a reflection of my experience. And, you know, there's an irreverence about it. There's also gravitas, like the the quality of the brand is really based on the quality of our ingredients. We have the best ingredients in the world, but at the same time, we don't take ourselves too seriously. I think we're also just, you know, really trying to make sense for a modern world. And so, since our beginning days, we, we've always said to people that they can really play with our flavors, make it their own. They don't have to feel restricted to eating Chinese food, even with our products. You know, you can eat it on your eggs in the morning, your salads, even ice cream, right? And so that's kind of the playfulness of our brand with the purpose of bringing people around the table, removing barriers and just 
you know, having people kind of see a piece of themselves in the product and the brand and make it their own. And I think the city of LA has definitely helped to shape that. You know, we're a very modern brand. You can kind of feel that convergence of like the fly restaurant energy with like the LA energy in our branding, in our social media, the way we talk to our community and uh, the way that we build our community. So um, yeah, I definitely think it's, you know, it's a reflection of me and my team and, you know, we happen to be based here. So yeah, it's definitely had an effect. And you've certainly built a brand where people are proud to wear your merch. Very excited to chat more Jing. That's Jing Gao of Flyby Jing. If you're enjoying our conversation, please subscribe or follow to Shopify Masters on our listening platform and leave us a review or comment on this episode with Jing. Thanks. So you mentioned Kickstarter earlier. How did you approach launching a food product on a crowdfunding platform, what advice do you have for founders who are looking to do the same? You can't really sample or taste the item. So I imagine there's an additional challenge with that. Yeah. So Kickstarter is really a storytelling platform and it's really geared towards that. They really give you a lot of tools for that. And so I knew how important the video was going to be because that's your chance to connect with um, your potential customer. You have really less than 30 seconds to grab their attention. And so I've you know, spent a lot of time studying best-in-class Kickstarter projects. I had some friends that have had really successful Kickstarter campaigns and got a lot of advice from them. I think Kickstarter itself is a really great resource. Their help pages, their kind of like manuals are are really thorough and provide a ton of great advice, which I think most people don't actually read. Um, But, you know, there's a ton of great nuggets in there. There's an art and an arc in storytelling that really you can use to your advantage with Kickstarter. And so for us, you know, I brought some friends who are a videographer and a photographer to Chengdu, and we spent a week there and we just captured this incredible, rich, vibrant content of the fly restaurants, the flavors, the spice markets. And it just felt like you were there if you were watching the video. And I think that did a lot in communicating kind of what we were about. And beyond that, you know, the other um, tips that were really helpful for me were you want to be able to hit your goal on Kickstarter because once you do, then there's a momentum behind it because people want to back a project that's already hit their goal because they know that they'll be able to get the product, right? If it doesn't hit the goal, then all the money gets returned and the project doesn't happen. So it's really key to actually hit your goal on the first day. And that's something that, you know, is not very obvious, right? You think like you're supposed to take the whole month to hit your goal, but you have to really hit it on the first day or two in order for there to be enough momentum that Kickstarter will then push it to the homepage and push it out onto the newsletters and just, you know, word of mouth will spread. So you want to make sure that your goal is approachable enough and that you can be confident to hit it, even if you know that you want to actually raise more than what your goal states. That's another big tip. And then, you know, just making sure that you have the right kind of offerings, right? Like most people on Kickstarter back at a $25 
level. So you want to make sure that at $25, you actually are offering something really of value. But then you also want to make sure that someone who wanted to support you at $1,000, let's say, will also have something for them. So just making sure that the offering tiers are well placed. Um, And then lastly is really like social proof, right? So a lot of the really successful campaigns will have worked on PR even ahead of the campaign going live. And so in my case, I cold emailed several editors who I knew had interest in writing about Asian food. And two of them ended up writing pieces about the campaign that went live on New York Magazine and Savoy on the day of the campaign launching. And that led, you know, the campaign to be fully funded within a day. It went viral and it kind of snowballed from there. So there's just a lot of different pieces and it does take a long time to get it all right. I spent more than a month just setting up the campaign. And then there is the month that the campaign's going on that you still have to keep working at it. I wrote personalized emails to 400 people, like pretty much tried to find every single person I've ever met and write them a letter about what I was doing. Yeah, it's just like a really time-consuming process, but it is rewarding because at the end of it, you know, you get your base of um, potential future customers who are actually quite understanding of any delays and mishaps that happen when you are first starting out. And it's good practice before you actually start your Shopify site where, you know, the general public might not be as understanding of delays. Thank you for so many key tips. I feel like there's so many takeaways for our listeners. I did wanted to ask about your packaging because I think that might have been another area that really helped your Kickstarter as well as the business in general. Um, The jar itself is super beautiful. It doesn't look like traditional sauces and it really stands out like you would want it on your counter. So for our listeners who might have not seen a jar before, can you describe your design philosophy, the look of it? And what was the process like doing the whole packaging side of things? We actually did a rebrand in the fall of 2020. And what you see now is actually the rebrand. When we originally launched, it was this neon pink, very bright colors and very, you know, eye-catching. What I wanted to do with the rebrand, though, is I realized that more and more we were going to eventually be moving into retail. And I wanted the product itself to really tell our story. Because what I found was we had great success ever since the beginning. People loved the product. They would spread the word about it. But what people really connected to was our story. Whenever I would meet someone and I would chat with them about our story, our mission of rewriting the narrative about Chinese food and kind of showing how high quality Chinese food can be with none of the artificial additives and stuff like that and kind of the journey and the story meaning behind Fly by Jing. So I was inspired by brands like Dr. Bronner, like Oatly, you know, who have like this sort of maximalist brand identity. Um, And also, I think, you know, it was just a reaction also to some of the, you know, there's a lot of brands at the time that weren't super minimal and, you know, all kind of had a very similar aesthetic. Um, So I wanted to stand out in a way and, and also at the same time tell our story on the product itself. I worked with a branding agency based in L.A. called Day Job. 
And I gave them that brief and I spent a lot of time with them. And I really just, you know, downloaded the story to them because that was so important. And so what they came up with together with me was what you see now, which is, you know, a packaging that literally tells our story on, on the jar. And you'll see um, our tagline under the brand name, and it says, not traditional, but personal. And that was also an addressing some feedback that we'd gotten from the very beginning, you know, that I think as much as, you know, you could say that we were successful straight out the gate, there was a ton of resistance. You know, we had a lot of people, Chinese and otherwise, that resisted this product because it wasn't in line with what their previous experience was with Chinese food. They were like, well, I've, you know, been to China once or I have eaten at a lot of Chinese restaurants and this doesn't taste like that. So therefore, this must not be Chinese food. I realized that people tended to put Chinese food into a box and not allow it to evolve or be any different from what their personal experience is. And so I wanted to sort of push that assumption, right? Like, why do you think that, right? Like, I think, especially given my experience of having worked in China for so long and seen the richness and the depth and breadth of Chinese food, I knew that there was so much complexity in the cuisine. Even if you were working as a chef in China for your entire life, you could never cover the breadth of it. Even just if you take a condiment, one single condiment, chili crisp, there's thousands of renditions across China. Like every family has their own style and version. And, you know, the idea that there can only be one of something was so archaic and also rooted in, in uh, prejudice, I realized. There is a place for, for our product, just like there is for thousands of other voices. I love the fact that you're challenging the quote-quote authentic box because I think a lot of the times if you're not allowing a culture to evolve and change and be adapted, then you're not allowing it to grow as well. Another way that you're challenging it is on the pricing front and you're sourcing really high quality ingredients and challenging the narrative that usually comes with Chinese cuisine being valued at a lower price point. So talk to us about your pricing strategy and why that's also a very important part of your business. I was noticing that in the U.S. and North America, you know, Chinese uh food products were generally only found in Chinatown, in Chinese grocery stores, right? You had to go in and look for it. And usually it's sort of like collecting dust on like a low shelf somewhere in the back of the store. It's associated with really low prices. So, so there's a concept called the hierarchy of taste, which was coined by a sociology professor in NYU. And that's really based on the idea that we as a society prescribe you know, values to different cuisines based upon the way that we really view the socioeconomic status of immigrants from those cultures. Typically, cuisines like Chinese food, Vietnamese food, you know, other Asian cuisines tend to be at the very bottom of that totem pole. And, um, but the thing is that, that I found really interesting was that this professor, you know, stated that, um, these hierarchies were actually not static. They're evolving. 
right? So um, whereas 100 years ago, Italian food was also at the bottom of that totem pole. People looked down upon it. They, you know, looked down on Italian people um, when they first immigrated to America. But now things have changed. Italian food and pasta can actually command really high prices in restaurants. Because that is dynamic, it was really interesting because, you know, people like me could actually affect that change. And so it was important for me to really reflect at the end of the day, just the value of what's inside this product and what goes into it. And also the value of the culture behind it. Of course, there's also the value of the labor that goes into it, whether that's at the manufacturing level, at the farm level, at my team level. And, um, you know, I wanted to um, establish the product as premium. And I think when we first put it out at that $15 price point, there was a lot of shock. People had just never seen that before. And there was anger and vitriol like directed towards us. You know, people saying like, how dare you? You know, Chinese food is not allowed to be expensive. I think the fact that like our Kickstarter went viral ended up becoming one of the highest funded craft food projects at that price point, And also, you know, the growth that we've seen since, it really told me that people really believed in our vision and the kind of world that we believe, you know, is possible. And they wanted to get behind that. And for them, that was them voting with their dollars. The fact that we have grown the way that we have has shown to me that there really is the need for a premium Chinese food product. And so I, I do feel like I made the right decision in positioning it that way. And you know, at the end of the day, I think one of my founder friends, Sana, from another spice company called Diaspora, she really put it the best. She said, you know, whenever there's a product that's cheap, somewhere along the value chain, someone is getting taken advantage of. And I think that's really important to remember. Well, I think your work has definitely been at the forefront of changing that conversation. And people have certainly bought into not just the product, but everything, the pricing the story stands for. And in addition, companies are also buying into the concept as well. You've had great partnerships with Shake Shack, Disney, Eater. Uh, so tell us, how did you go about establishing those partnerships and also nurturing them along the way? So I think for our partnerships with other brands, it's happened largely very organically. Um, we tend to you know, gravitate and vice versa to companies that have similar ethos as us and have similar customer bases as us and also just can work on something just fun with us. So I think that's kind of our approach is just, does this make sense? Are we aligned in terms of our communities and can we just have some fun with it? So we've been really lucky to work with amazing brands like Disney and Pixar. We did a collab product with the movie Turning Red, which I think is an amazing movie. I was really amazed that we were, we live in a time when a movie like that can exist, you know, and is produced out of a major production studio like Pixar. It's a story about a Chinese Canadian girl that turns into a panda, which is like from Sichuan. So I felt like it was really like um, speaking to me. So from collabs like that to Shake Shack, we're rolling out um, a 
Sichuan uh, chili crisp menu at every Shake Shack in the U.S. next year for four months. It's yeah, it's been it's been really incredible to you know reach a different customer segment as well and just show continue to show kind of how versatile this this condiment is. And yes, definitely as a fellow Chinese Canadian who grew up in Toronto, Turning Red really hit home for me as well. So to wrap our show, I definitely wanted to ask if there's any new launches or products that you can share with us. So we just launched a couple of new products. We recently launched an extra spicy version of the Chili Crisp. That's available now on the website. And then we also recently launched a Chili Crisp vinaigrette, which I'm really excited about. It's what we call sort of a compound flavor in Sichuan cuisine, which is where you take like different types of flavors, mash it up, and it becomes something greater than the sum of its parts. And it's a really versatile sauce that you can use for not just, you know, as a vinaigrette to dress your salads, but also as a marinade. And you can, you know, mix your noodles with it, dip your dumplings in it. It's really, really versatile. And we're just really looking forward to becoming more um, widely available. We went from D2C only, you know, we started out on Shopify and uh, we were only available on Shopify for the first like almost three years. And this year marked the first time that we entered retail. And so now we're available in uh, 3,000 plus stores across the U.S. And we would love to be available in Canada soon. We actually have a lot of customers in Canada. So we're exploring that. Uh, We do ship to Canada now, but international shipping can get a little expensive. So um, looking forward to some international expansion and more you know, retail expansion. Amazing. Well, I definitely look forward to seeing Flyby Jing in the shelves of Canadian retailers. And thank you so much for being here, Jing. Thank you so much for having me. That's Jing Gao, founder and CEO of Flyby Jing. Shopify Masters is produced by Megan Coyle and Gogo Zoger. Our engineers are Matt Schwartz and Miku Betlam. Our supervising producer is Benjamin Gottlieb. I'm Shwang Esther Shan, and you've been listening to Shopify On Location in Los Angeles. (laughs) 